The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. (laughs) Hello, and welcome back to Through the Glass Columns, your weekly read-along Wheel of Time podcast currently in book two, The Great Hunt of Robert Jordan's Masterful Saga. If I say it fast enough, we can fit even more facts about it into the introduction. Uh, Joining you, as always, is me, Greg, your host, who knows nothing about the Wheel of Time, although that's becoming less and less true, and Tyler, who knows everything about the Wheel of Time, which is actually also becoming more and more true. I don't know. Tyler, how are you? (laughs) Uh, I definitely do not know everything. And I will say, you don't know much about the Wheel of Time, but you know that it is masterful. I appreciate Mm. that term now being used to describe (laughs) this. I think I've got you hooked for at least a couple more books. Uh, Mm. I will say, we had in the last week said, uh, those were chapters that you said, like, could you tell why Tyler liked them? The answer was because they weren't in Rand's head. But this week, (laughs) I think we actually get a little bit of time to discuss Tyler enjoying being in Rand's head, wow. which is not something we have had recently. What was Ooh. your take just kind of overall on these two chapters? Uh, yeah, it, it, I would not say that it was as fun as the week before. And I think it's because the week before was such different type material and it really felt fresh. Um, was this fresher than other Rand material? Yeah, I'll go with that, but uh, I'm 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 interested to unpack it a little bit more, especially the second chapter. There were times when I felt, uh, am I getting this all, or am I being distracted by the screaming children near me into not <laughs> understanding this? So I, as always, look forward to our conversation and understanding them a bit more. So those two chapters, for those who somehow stumbled into this podcast episode, if this is your first week, what are you doing? Uh, you don't belong here. Go back to find a, a, a an accessible episode or. Or just start in the middle. You do you. (laughs) Or else welcome. Welcome as you are. So we are halfway through, just past halfway through uh, book two of the the Wheel of Time saga. So we are on chapter 26, Discord, the place Tyler often yells at me for not keeping up with our DM, uh, our Dungeons and Dragons posts. And chapter 27, The Shadow in the Night, which is the threat he offers towards me unless I answer those Dungeons and Dragons posts. Uh, two two Rand chapters, as you noted, two pretty fun chapters. I think we should just dig in before our punchiness uh, overwhelms any sense of productivity here. Uh, that sounds like a good plan to me because productivity is not a thing I'm good at on Sunday nights, let me tell you. Uh, so Rand begins this chapter discord by running upstairs, just thrilled that Tom is alive. He tells Loyal and Hurin that this is the case. And immediately he starts kind of insisting that Loyal accompany him to the bunch of grapes, which is where Tom is staying. And at first, Loyal is really reticent because he's afraid he's going to be seen by another Ogier. And he expresses how kind of rash it was for him to leave in the way that he did. But eventually Rand is able to convince him to leave. Um, when they arrive at the bunch of grapes, they are told by the innkeeper to go upstairs to Tom's room and Dina will likely let them wait there uh, when they get upstairs they meet Dina. It soon becomes apparent that she is in a romantic relationship with Tom. She intends to be a gleeman someday and is learning the skills from Tom. And just as soon as Rand starts to get a little bit uncomfortable with what the relationship might look like, Tom immediately arrives and sweeps Dina off her feet and greets Rand and then sends Dina off to get her knives so that he and Rand can have a kind of more detailed conversation. Um, 
At this point, Rand immediately tells him that he has the Horn of Valir. Tom seems intrigued, but rejects any offer of coming along. He seems to say, uh, more or less, I'm living my life, you're living yours. If you're free of Moraine, that's wonderful. I'm glad the Aes Sedai aren't in your life anymore but I'm done with it. Um, at this point, um, Lloyd, I'm sorry, Rand and Tom have a brief conversation about his nephew, Owen, who apparently could channel the one power. And then Rand asks Loyal to leave and go downstairs and then begins asking Tom about the dragon reborn. Um, we hear a couple of pieces of prophecy that we hadn't heard before. And then once again, Tom makes it very, very clear he is not going to be going with Rand. And then as Rand leaves, we get just a a very brief uh, conversation where uh, Tom, basically the innkeeper comes in and is trying to warn Tom away from getting involved with Daz de Mar, and Tom is almost surprised to realize how much of a noble uh, Rand looks like, and he seems like he kind of missed a lot of what was going on in that conversation and, and seems a little frustrated by the fact that he didn't notice any of that. So I think this is an interesting chapter in that it's the reintroduction of Tom, and it is doing so in a way that at least initially makes it appear as if Tom is not going to be a long-term part of this story. So what was your thought on this reintroduction of Tom and the new introduction of a character whose name I think is Dina, but might be Dena, and I'm not sure, because Robert Jordan names don't seem consistent to me. Your thoughts on the chapter overall? Uh, really interesting chapter. So I expressed last episode that something felt off about Tom to me. And, and, you know, I think from the last time we met Tom, Dina is the thing that has potentially changed him the most, right? We would only expect that a character's motivation has changed but I was particularly suspicious that there was something sinister going on with him, which his relationship with Dina would would not explain. And there were hints in this chapter that kept those suspicions alive, while also hints that kind of squashed that. So I, I left it kind of really unsure. And so um, one of the places I spent a lot of my thinking on this is, is Loyal. And um, you alluded to this in your summary. When Rand starts sharing everything very quickly, Loyal yeah. is the first one who's like, whoa, 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 whoa. And, and kind of tells him, like, be cautious. Maybe don't say these things so easily. And given the nature of the character loyal, loyal, um, I was like, yeah, I kind of think I think I was right in that we're giving too much over too quickly. Um, but, you know, we actually do get the opportunity to go into Tom's head and it's not like we're getting anything there that indicates something is off about him. You know, I think the probably where my head was theorizing the most is if this is somebody pretending to be Tom. And I don't think Robert Jordan would play the game of we're in Tom's head, but you don't know it's not Tom. It's, yep. you know, I, I think that is a step too far to, to getting us to figure it out. So uh, all of that is to say, I left this feeling like, okay, I think this is really Tom and not somebody pretending not to be, or pretending to be him. And yet I still feel a little off about the whole interaction. Yeah, and I think that that's a really good point to be making about what exactly does it mean to be in Tom's head and what information can we glean from what is not thought as opposed to what is, right? Everything on the page, I don't think Robert Jordan is in the business of lying from his character's perspective. You're exactly right about that. But I will say Robert Jordan is the kind of writer who will have his characters keep secrets from the writer if it's appropriate for the story. So don't believe that just because you are in a character's head that they are telling you everything they know about a situation. If a character isn't directly thinking about something, Robert Jordan won't tell you their perspective on something. So I think that's a good thing to be keeping an eye on. Um, the other well, thing that I... Oh, go ahead, please. On that point, that would be essentially what was going on with naive in the first book right that we got into yeah. her head and we didn't see the love story or didn't have it fully explained to us and i think i guess you could also put moraine into that category we've been in moraine's head and not necessarily understood all that she knew or something yeah. so so point well taken but go ahead with what you were going to say 
Yeah, I think actually a really good example of that is uh, kind of nestled in what you were just saying, just to kind of highlight this in particular, is the fact that Moraine can't lie has been the case for a book and a half, and we've been in her head for probably 30, 40 pages. She never thought about it, even though she was evading lying multiple times in those chapters. So I think that's just a good indication of how we can think about Tom, right? He would tell us if something he was saying out loud was a lie, but that probably doesn't mean that he's not necessarily thinking about avoiding false truth telling. Um, I think the other thing that jumped out to me in what you are saying is your discussion about Loyal and how kind of reticent he is to share this information with Tom, um, which I think is interesting because the chapter begins with Loyal being reticent to even leave the hotel room for fear of being seen by any Ogier who might be coming through. And so I think it's an interesting kind of place to start this chapter, because as you say, I think we are all kind of naturally inclined to side with Loyal on the question of should you be telling everything to Tom, but we also kind of see that he's an overly cautious character potentially at the beginning mm -hmm. of this chapter. So how do you weigh that kind of aspect of Loyal and what we learned about him early in the chapter against what you kind of see later on? Well, it was funny with that last episode, we ended up having an accidental map discussion. And I was like, hey, look at that. We're really close to steading Shanghai. Shanghai? Yeah. yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah. I, I believe Sofu is the one that is close to here. Oh, okay. But, but we were, like, much closer to Loyal's yes. uh, home than before. And so I was glad to have that kind of in my pocket as, like, oh, yeah, actually, he would be much, you know, he's now traversed a good chunk of the space uh, that yeah. he had run away from. Um, <laughs> I'm so sorry I'm about to say this. I got Jar Jar Binks vibes uh, from this uh, moment because – you know, Jar Jar in the, in the beginning of Phantom Menace has been banished. And so yeah. the fact that he brings the Jedi back there, I mean, it's a very goofy thing where he's like, we should go there. Oh, wait, I forgot I can't go there. Uh, and and Loyal is not quite in that same space. He's he's certainly a most, more stoic character. But it was interesting to me that we've he's signed on for this adventure. It's brought him more into danger. And it's kind of surprising that, you know, there is something a little bit close to subterfuge going on there. Like he, he wants to pass through this place and continue on the adventure without being spotted is a very different side of Loyal than we've seen previously. Yeah, I think that is an excellent point that I definitely didn't ignore because it began with a reference to the prequels. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I, th I think that Loyal definitely is kind of advancing this interesting thing that I think Robert Jordan likes to do, which is introducing us to a culture by giving us someone who is not a standard person in that culture. And yeah. so I think Loyal is playing around with a lot of expectations where it's really hard to figure out what if him is Ogier and what if him is the thing that got him banished from being in Ogier. And I think it's it's really effective that we have yet to really see much of that cult culture outside of him. Whereas I think kind of the, the stumbling block with a Jar Jar Binks is that we immediately have to contrast him against very not annoying Gungans. And that makes me hate <laughs> him the most. So uh, Loyal at least has no point of contrast for me to have anything to dislike him against. Um, that is actually, I think, an interesting place to then jump to the new character that we have, as opposed to the old reliable that we've been, you know, kind of riding with for quite some time. How did the introduction of Dina land to you? Is this character that you're kind of intrigued by or does it feel like kind of Tom adjacent and he was the big star of the chapter for you? Um. I'm trying to figure out how to word this so I don't sound sexist, but I think I was just, uh, we've been very suspicious of women across this whole book, not because of anything innate in us, but because Robert Jordan has asked us to question all. I said, all right, fine. We'll go lay down with our therapists and work through these feelings. Uh, but the cultures have asked us to be suspicious of the Aes Sedai who are all women. And then we have um, this character, Celine, that is just, you know, clearly so dark and terrible plus even more terrible uh you know Aes Sedai than the average Aes Sedai um and so there was a way in which I found myself kind of naturally distrusting Dina um but then as the chapter unfolded it's not that I thought her only definition was uh against uh Tom she just so felt it fell into the trap of like the good life that I could have if I could just get out of the game uh you know that kind of yeah 
trope. And so uh, I hope there's more to her than that. And, you know, there's something interesting to her being an apprentice. And even when these strangers walk in the room, she's like, nah, I got to practice. It's cool. Uh, and then the love and affection she shows Tom seemed a little over the top PDA, but was genuine. I, I don't have any reason to doubt it. So yeah. if this is kind of the lovebirds on their honeymoon trying to get away from the world of craziness, I think, unfortunately, I see her role probably primarily as being what Tom has to sacrifice, probably not literally, but what he has to give up in order to go back and fulfill his heroic duties. Well, and it's interesting that that is where you are seeing the story going in that to some degree, at least at the end of the chapter, that's kind of where Tom already sees the story going. Right. Um, I think the innkeeper at the end of the chapter tells him you should marry that girl. And his response is like, no, why would I saddle her with an old husband? Right. Mm. So he's already prepared to sacrifice himself for her. And it's it's almost then interesting to me that this chapter seems to be really set up for Tom seeming to be ready to leave Dina and yet he refuses Rand's call. And, and that's the mm. next thing in the chapter, right? Is Rand immediately gives him all of the information and is like, you're a gleeman. I have the horn. Let's do this thing. And, and Tom pretty emphatically and immediately says, no, you can tell he's tempted, but it, it doesn't seem like it really sways him much at all. So do you see, I actually hadn't noticed this when I was reading, but do you see any of that as kind of being intention? I think everyone reading the chapter immediately kind of sees Tom, because he outright says it, as kind of preparing to leave Dina at some point, and yet he doesn't take Rand's opportunity to, to make that break now. Yeah, well, I, I think a lot, Tom is one of the characters who was collecting stories, right? When yeah. we first met him, and, and that was his initial reason for going along with the fellowship, for lack of a better word for all of them. Um, and so it is interesting that, as you just alluded to, this is the greatest opportunity, right? This is, yeah. you know the full uh, rich and famous contract from the Muppet movie being handed to him to be the, the Gleeman of all Gleeman. Uh, and yet I don't see that really as being a motivation fully. I, I, I don't know how yeah. I, that that's clunky wording, but, but it's certainly, as you're saying, it's not overcoming Dina despite him being sure Dina should be with somebody else. And so there is that, you know, I think I I think I read the oh I'm just a tired old man is just kind of self-deprecating like who could yeah. love me droopy face uh and and it's like no like you uh you're loved by this seemingly beautiful seemingly amorous woman which I mean isn't that the dream so uh like he should feel worthy of it and should be free to go have that life even though everything in me is like yeah it's not happening so i hope i mean i think i'm using this right i hope she doesn't get fridged like taken away in some way from him i um you know i i know these books were written at the time where that was just a common plot device why we refer to it now as a cliche so um i think it, i'm curious to see what happens there in the mix is the fact that he seemed very curious about like, where's Moraine? She's not around. Yeah. And I think in your summary, you referenced how he seemed really glad for Rand's sake that he had disentangled himself. When I read that, it was much more, oh, you're alone. You're not protected. You're not using that. So in the category of is this Tom, that was like, uh-oh, Rand's answering questions. And that's not a good thing um, as I read the chapter in the moment. Yeah, and I think at the end of the chapter, we get the only thing that even maybe subtly counteracts that, but I think you're right to be potentially suspicious of that. The only other thing is at the end of the chapter, um, Tom makes it clear that he previously believed that one of the three boys, Moraine, was after them because they could channel. And so Tom, it seems, is the two moments that he seems really relieved in the chapter are when um, Rand says that Moraine is no longer with him, and then Later in the chapter, he reassures um, Tom that there is no Aes Sedai with him at all. And after Rand has left in Tom's head, he actually says something along the lines of, I must have been wrong about what Moraine was looking for. They never would have let him get away gentle or ungentled if he could channel. And so I think there's possibly the story of why he's so excited that Moraine isn't there is at least partially tied up in that. He's just relieved that Rand isn't a boy who can channel and thus will have to be gentled at least he doesn't think so but 
I think you're right to say there's also, you know, something that raises some eyebrows in, in the midst mm -hmm. of, of Tom reacting the way he does to that. Um, the other Tom reaction that really stood out to me is once he kind of is convinced that uh, Rand actually has the Horn of Valir, he has a little bit of a monologue about how unprepared the world is. And he talks about how Carrion um, is relying on grain from elsewhere and the nobles aren't building armies. They're competing against each other in politics and no one is really ready for the political unrest that could come from the end of times. And I just thought that that kind of shift in tone from Tom from being very like upbeat and everything's going to be great to like considering the consequences of the horn being found I feel like really kind of epitomizes that character who does kind of straddle the line between like political genius and dude who just wants to hang out in bars and tell stories <laughs> um yeah it it you know, we've talked or I've re referenced a lot of time about Joseph Campbell's coinage that it's like the concerns of the everyday versus the concerns of the strange new world. And it's like Tom is straddling that line, too. And it's like, no, I'm actually concerned about the everyday and the kind of basic what will happen to these societies um, instead of the big mythic like we're headed to the epoch of the ages attitude yep. uh, for it. Um, and it. I think you're right to to remind us that it itself is a reminder of how much Tom knows and what somebody who's yeah. actually traveled. And honestly, it makes me think and he gets name checked next chapter. It makes me think a little bit about Pat and Fane too, another character yeah. who would be very worldly and all the things they, they gather, you know, there's this contrast with Rand who has been stumbling into the game of games um, and not actually knowing a thing about what he's doing. Whereas Tom is, you know, much more equipped for that and, and could be a mentor or a guide through that um, should we need him. Yeah, and I think that actually as you're talking about Tom as both kind of like having an enormous amount of knowledge and then also having this kind of very like on the ground practical perspective, that actually kind of keyed me to me as reminding me a lot of Varys from Game of Thrones as kind of like being the one character who actually is involved in the political scheming but is trying to do it with the everyday people in mind as opposed to everyone else who is doing it with power in mind. So mm -hmm. while Tom obviously is now out of the game, I do think that's an interesting parallel to think of him as someone who hears about the end times and doesn't think, what can I do to take advantage of it? But thinks, how is the grain going to get to the people who need it? And that, at least to me, is a moment that makes me say, OK, even if this is someone who is kind of in Sketchville right now, like I at least trust him a little, even mm. if I think like there's there's maybe something deeper going on there. Um, the interesting thing for me, then, is that moment is Rand giving every single detail to Tom, right? He tells him about the horn and how he knows and where the eyes to die are and what everything is going on. And then he sends Loyal out of the room and still isn't able to tell Tom that he is the dragon reborn or that Moraine thinks he is the dragon reborn. Instead, he asks after prophecy. So um, I am curious about two things. First is your impression about Rand not telling Tom that he is the dragon reborn or suspects he is the dragon reborn. And second, I would like your thoughts on this bit of prophecy that I believe is already one fourth completed. Because Tom recites the following, twice and twice he shall be marked, twice to live and twice to die, once the heron to set his path, twice the heron to name him true, once the dragon for remembrance lost, twice the dragon for the price he must pay. And I'm pretty sure Rand has already been marked once the heron on one of his palms. So I think this is a really interesting introduction to one of the kind of pieces of prophecy we're going to have to grapple with what was your take both on Rand's approach to asking about the dragon reborn and this initial answer that tom gives uh so the dragon reborn piece and not revealing that i think he still has enough sense to recognize that that's what puts him in danger in the larger society that's what makes him a target and so i think 
in some ways he's still afraid to give that up. I think that's also in some ways he's afraid to admit it to himself. So uh, if he doesn't say it, then it's not going to be true. Uh, continued to not be true. Yeah. Even though I think there's some uh, failure in that, that logic as we go through. So I was really curious about that first prophecy you noted. And, you know, I think you're, I, I went to the same thing that he had his hand marked. I mean, it's in the next paragraph in case you forgot it, but, yeah. um, but uh, what's interesting to me is that's a moment where um, Tom notices the herons embroidered on his collar, right? Like that's right. as he's reciting it, he he notes those. And then I guess the kind of, nah, never mind. I, I have five because there's three on the, the sword itself. It, you know, all of that is immediately like, yeah, and none of those are you, right? None of those yeah. are your body uh, as a part of that. And so I think I, I struggled with that moment knowing is Rand, I mean, I think part of it is Rand just throwing him off, but, you know, is that also like Tom touching the clothing? It's a little weird, like well, if he thinks that. And don't forget, too, that it was actually Moraine who picked out this clothing for Rand. She swapped out all of the clothes that he had had before. So the fact that Rand is now covered in herons is not something that is coincidental, right? Uh, Moraine is either trying to do something to tie him to this prophecy or potentially for people who are really well versed, like Tom, trying to throw them off the scent by making it so there are too many herons mm -hmm. for uh, the prophecy to apply. So I think this may be simultaneously Tom reading deeply into the game and Moraine already having planned for people to read deeply into the game. So once we get into too many layers, I, I kind of tap out, but I think there's some stuff going on there. Um, well, and, and only related to that is we've talked previously about how the sword seemed to not be part of the prophecy, right? I think yeah. that was at the end of book one. I, I said, oh, it feels like this is the thing that makes this all different. And and we also talked about the the shadows and the those people. But it felt like the, the sword was not supposed to be part of the plan. And yet here it is so clearly written into the prophecy that, yeah. you know, everybody has always noted the heron mark blade but nobody had tied it into a prophecy to my knowledge or to my memory i should say yeah. it was always like oh that's interesting that you have that you must be a great swordsman or you have this wonderful thing and so the fact that like the whole time we've been talking about this we have the heron like so clearly marking this um you know, so then my question goes to the, or my mind goes to the second one, because it says, uh, you know, a second or twice the heron to name him true. Is that going to be the moment that Rand finally takes on his actual identity? I shouldn't say actual because, again, you know, he is as uh, Land taught us. He is Rand Althor. That's uh, his his true name. But will he take on, you know, his larger identity at some point? And will that involve? another another accidental branding uh home alone style or will that you know involve something uh else will he take it on you know just a, a long tattoo parlor scene is what i see coming <laughs> well i obviously can't add too much to that without giving anything away but i will say uh you noted that no one was really tying rand's sword into any prophecies right the heron is there in a marking but not in terms of an association with a weapon but yet in this same chapter we learn that there is at least one prophecy that is directly tied to a sword so this is one that we've had referenced before but not in quite so much detail so tom lays out what he sees as kind of a conundrum or a prophecy or a um a paradox in one of the prophecies where it is said that the stone of tear will never fall until the dragon holds calendar, which is known as the sword that is not a sword. But it is also known that the sword that is not a sword is held within the stone of tear. And so Tom kind of openly wonders, how is it possible for him to get to calendar if he is not taking the, the, stone and vice versa so i think that that is in association with a sword just not rands um and then i would also point to the last piece of prophecy that we have in this chapter which is the one that i find um kind of interesting from my kind of reader perspective um so this is the one again on the same page as the previous at least in my edition of the book Twice dawns the day when his blood is shed, once for mourning, once for birth. Red on black, the dragon's blood stains the rock of Shial Ghoul in the 
free men from the shadow. So this prophecy, I think, is really interesting to me for two reasons. One is because unlike everything we've seen before, this is not a happy yay prophecy about the dragon. This is a horrible things will probably happen to the dragon kind of prophecy. And number two, the reason I get very excited about this prophecy is because Rand actually reacts to it instead of pushing it away like he has done every time he hears negative information. And so this is actually why I said I'm actually happy to be in Rand's head, at least for a couple of chapters, is because Rand grappling with the darkness of his future, his prophesied future, is one of the most interesting things that this character can do from my perspective, as opposed to not understanding that Celine is evil, which, as we will see again in the next chapter, is the <laughs> bane of my existence. So what are your thoughts on these last two uh, prophecies and what I think of as kind of like the dark turn that we start to see a little bit in terms of what it means to be the dragon? Yeah, um, it's actually Harry Potter. Uh, I think it's Ollivander says uh, the other person who wields this wand did great things, terrible things, but great things. Um, and it feels very much like that, right? Like yeah. the dragon is going to do like great as in size of of things, uh, but terrible at the same time. And that kind yeah. of duality of like there's going to be a huge cost to this. Um Shial Ghoul. Yes. Is that the place they went? What? So, that, my Lauren. Yes. Yeah, so, that I believe we've had one or two references is more or less think of it as like the equivalent of Mount Doom, right? It's the okay. like dark one central. Um, and so it's been referenced a couple of times as like uh, in the Age of Legends, someone like struck at Shial Ghoul or the Dark One was coming from Shial Ghoul. Uh, but basically it is in the blight. And I think if you look in your map, it is actually kind of the very top middle of the map. Um, you'll see just like a small mountain and Shial Ghoul is noted. Um, but it's actually relatively far away from the eye of the world, which, as was noted in the previous book, moves. So we have mm. not been there, but we have at least been to the region uh, that this takes place. Um, I actually do want to mention one thing that is not directly in the book, but would have kind of been available publicly at the time that this book came out. Um, the first two books of this series were published um, very quickly after one another. I think there was only like a four or five month gap between them. Um, and as part of the promotion for the second book, one of the things that Robert Jordan discussed is kind of what the what he kind of described as like a thesis statement or kind of his overall goal for the series was. And one of the ways he described this is as being, he wanted to tell the story of what would it mean if you were a chosen one and being the chosen one was actually kind of a terrible thing to be. And I mm. think we're really starting to see that a bit more in this chapter. And for me, that's what I get excited to read about with Rand. So that's why I'm kind of seeing all of these links to Shial Ghoul and Darkness and the end as being so interesting to me is because very early on, Robert Jordan identified that as kind of a core part of what it meant to be the Dragon Reborn. Interesting. And well, the only other thing I'll, I'll say kind of where my head in, in my notes, I recorded these thoughts is there's, two moments here uh, and you've just referenced both of them the one of the conundrum how do i do this here and like uh, the chicken and egg problem yeah. of that and then the second one being like how would a day dawn twice and we have since last we saw this entered into this mythology with other planes of reality related to this right. so um so that's where i went in my notes i'm like okay well it's like, how could there be two things? It's like, we just learned how there could be not just two, but many, many multiverse things. Um, yeah. So I, th I think that to me is, I'm like, I think we're starting to see one potential for how those things could become true at the same time, even if, um, you know, it's not 
the end all answer. It's like, well, yeah, we're we're seeing a lot of doublings, and now it's like, okay, now we're we're getting there. So that's all I ended up saying about the prophecy. I think we've talked before. Prophecies to me are are always a little like, yeah, whatever, dude. Like, let's let's just get through it, and yeah, then I'll look after. You know, there's always that moment where some characters like, oh, Rand, I just remembered. Here's the prophecy, <laughs> and you're like, okay, good on you, Robert Jordan. You told me in this case, probably 12 books ago, what to expect and it happened. So uh, that's where I kind of left the prophecy. No, and that's totally reasonable. I, I think the only other thing I've got is my last note on the chapter. Um, we kind of go like dark prophecy, dark prophecy, blood on the stones, probably Rand's blood. That sounds really dark. And then immediately follow it up with Rand asking about Owen and madness. Mm. And what we learn is that even someone who doesn't seem like they were channeling much and seemed like they were avoiding doing it as much as they could, Owen made it three years before it was pretty clear that he was mad by the time the Red Aja came. So um, if Rand was looking for any sort of kind of like comfort, um, he got a couple years of it. What what was your take on on this, which I think is is probably not at all reassuring in the way that I'm sure Rand was hoping for? Uh, yeah, so it was almost reassuring to me though, because we're seeing, I presume, no sign of that madness. I, again, there's some things like if you convince me later that the void in the darkness is 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 madness or something like yeah maybe that I could see that. I, I was true. convinced the flies were the thing. Oh yeah yeah yeah. Time. <laughs> um, so maybe there's something that I'm just not fully perceiving that's like that, but it was almost reassuring to me because it's like, oh, it happens quick. And Rand, despite his flaws and obliviousness, seems to be acting rationally according to the logic of his mind. So it's like, okay, I think at least for now we're okay. We'll see where that goes after this. But a suggestion that he is different in some way. Yeah, and I, and I think that's basically the the right thing to be taking here is that we kind of get a, a pessimistic message, but then we're also kind of starting to piece together, okay, but what about this is is Owen's story and how is Rand different? And what are the things that we think might, you know, potentially save him from madness or what are the signs of madness? I, I, I think for me, this is just like a tiny piece of what is a puzzle that right now we have like 12 of 100 pieces of. So there's not a whole lot to say other than like, ooh, look, a puzzle piece. And mm. kind of come back to it later once we kind of finally start to to assemble the the full picture a little bit better. Um, I don't have any additional notes on the last scene from Tom's perspective. I think mostly because we hit it a little bit in the Dina discussion. Um, did you have anything else in the last bit of the chapter before we move on to chapter twenty seven? Um, I it was a little confusing. That was the innkeeper who came back to say all this. Like, yeah. I really, I com I confused the two names. So I'm like, oh, Dina came back, or you know, the the girlfriend came back, the yeah. the mistress came back, and then I was like, oh no, this is the innkeeper who's like, get out of the game, son. Uh, and and it all obviously became clear as I read it. But I'm like, what a weird role. But you know, I guess we're getting a hint that there's a larger relationship there of some kind. So yeah, and I think Tom even referred to her as an old friend, which makes me just go like, okay, this is a character who will probably come back in eight books. That seems to be how Robert Jordan works. <laughs> uh, sure. Barring any last shouts of things you remember, uh, I say we then switch over to chapter 27, The Shadow in the Night, in which Rand leaves a hotel, Loyal realized that he was cheated at dice, and then suddenly puppets that you thought were puppets are actually Trollocs. Um, Rand is attacked by a Trolloc that was pretending to be a puppet, he kills it and then is attacked by another. He is grabbed and Loyal is able to separate him from the Trolloc. But then Rand is not able to attack it without hurting Loyal until Loyal eventually kills the Trolloc and actually seems somewhat distraught because it's the first time he's killed anything, even if it was something evil. Um, they are then kind of trying to find their way into the crowd because they think the Trollocs won't come after them if there are thousands of people around. But they are constantly being kind of boxed into the alleys and it seems like the Trollocs are relatively well coordinated. Eventually they realize their only hope is to go through one of the walls to what initially they think are nearby manors but eventually realize is a chapter house of the Illuminators. 
Then suddenly at the beginning of a page, I went back about four times. Celine <laughs> is there. Um, she seems upset at Rand for getting trapped, but doesn't offer any help whatsoever. Um, they go into the Illuminators Hall, and there's a funny misunderstanding where Rand's like, Don't worry, we'll just get arrested. And Layal's like, No, they'll kill us worse than the Trollocs. Um, they set off some fireworks, and a guy named Tamuz gets yelled at. And then they set off some more fireworks and everything explodes, including a Trolloc, and they run away and Celine disappears. And it's an action chapter. This is a going to be a relatively quick summary. Um, they get <laughs> back to the inn and there is another letter from Celine for Rand. Think of the glory. Always think of the glory. Um, the chapter ends with Rand thinking to himself, are all women crazy? And let me answer that. Yes, but so are all men. Uh, Greg, what was your <laughs> thought on this chapter? You scare me there. I'm like, no, we're trying to prove we're not sexist this episode. This we're really, we're really digging ourselves a hole. Uh, yeah, my notes on this chapter are very short. It's not that I thought it was bad action, but it is just a lot of kind of actiony action. Yeah. Um, I thought the the way they were disgu- disguising themselves as the puppets was cool, and that was kind of an interesting something. Felt very, very ready for the television show to kind yeah. of play with and do something fun with. Um, but I really don't have a lot of depth. Um. I think, you know, as you've pointed out, when things get kind of plotty, you look for just those flashes of character. And the ones I have are the ones you mentioned, which is Loyal says he's never killed before, which is huge. And putting that in the context of our discussion about how, you know, we're kind of endeared to him, that endears him even more. Um, Celine just being so suspicious I, and yeah, like flying in and out. My, my um, note on that is just a star and then the word her. And I imagined <laughs> it in the like Michael Bluth, like, and <laughs> her, her, her. Uh, and then, yeah. And then uh, the capper on that is just like a letter at the end. Cause again, she's demonstrated yeah. she can't go in the city. She can't be spotted as somebody who's been pretending to be from here. So it's like, I'll just, I'll just send a letter. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I not badly written action by any means, just not particularly something that I have a lot to analyze about it. Yeah, I think this is one of those chapters where I'm like, I'm glad we didn't have two of these in a row because this is a really fun read, <laughs> but there's not a whole lot fun to talk about. Um, we, we have a friend who is doing a, a podcast where he's breaking the movie down into 20 minute increments and there was a part of me that was like I'm really glad that wasn't a Marvel movie because you would end up with like a 20 minute that was like and then they punched (laughs) each other for 20 minutes and how do you do an hour long podcast about that so that I kind of feel like that's what this is this would be a five minute really good action scene on Amazon but in book form um, Loyal got his first kill Say some things about that. <laughs> it's the only moment I have a big star next to in the entire chapter. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I've said since the beginning, I really enjoy Loyal, and and the fact that you know it, it's really interesting in in comparison to the chapter before, where it was like I need to keep a low profile. I'm banished. Misa yeah. been banished. Uh, but uh, I do think this is then like, well, so it wasn't for being violent, and it wasn't for for you know. Some, you know, what what we would normally think would be what would cause you to have trouble and banishment. So the fact that here he not only gets his first kill, but is mournful about it, even though it's a trollic. And um, I think it's just a reminder, you know, um, he fits very much in the druid profile uh, from from D&D. He's of nature and respects all nature and doesn't want to kill even something kind of as bastardized as this this uh, Trolloc. Yeah, as someone who is DMing a pacifist in a Dungeons and Dragons game for the first time, <laughs> uh, I am figuring out how to run encounters with a character like this. And it's it's mm. very interesting. And I'm impressed by Robert Jordan finding a way to make that first kill feel earned and not just like, oh, yeah, I murdered someone in cold blood. I'm very sad about it. Right. It it <laughs> really felt like Loyal kind of did everything he could to avoid killing a Trolloc, which, as you say, feels very in that like Lancelot, like so good. It's too good kind of mm. way. Um, that's what I have for Loyal <laughs> and his first kill. It, it's a, it's a well-written scene. I think it's effectively done. It makes me love that character more than I already did. Um, 
The other thing that jumps out to me in the early section of this chapter is just how coordinated the Trollocs are. And um, when they were that coordinated at Shadar Lagoth, it's worth noting that both Moraine and Lan were kind of raving about it. There's no one here to rave about it, so I mm. will. Something is going on for Trollocs to be this coordinated, to be cutting off every exit that Rand is trying to approach and look enough like puppets while doing it to not spook a crowd. So I think that should, you know, whether it's Fane or something else, that maybe should raise a few questions about what's coordinating this. But that that's kind of the closest thing to a mystery, as I feel like we're developing in a run-through-the-sewers the kind of scene. I'm not thinking of a good example right now, but there's a move in movies. Uh, oh, do you know what the best example is? Is uh, Jurassic Park, where you hear over and over again that Lexi likes uh, computers. Lexi, the girl? Yeah, yeah. In, yeah. yeah, Lexi. And then like later they need to to hack the system and she sits down at this computer and she's like Unix system I know this and it's like yes and we know you know that because you've told us 10 times you've 18 been times yeah. yeah it almost felt like that when it was like they're hurting us <gasps> I'm a shepherd I know this <laughs> like it felt <laughs> almost like a revelation that like of course I can figure this out because I've been hurting sh sheep all my life and now yeah. I'm being herded um it, it, that that's unfair to Jurassic Park and I'll send a letter apologizing to Steven Spielberg it's unfair to the book and I'll send a letter to the Jordan estate but it did just feel like yeah it's it's kind of like everything is so obviously telegraphed here um I agree um and I I did like the puppet thing as like a visual thing and then yeah. immediately thought like that should be beyond Trollocs you know I lump Trollocs into not even orcs in Lord of the Rings but more like the trolls and yeah. uh, that that, I mean, trolls, Trollocs, uh, but uh, that are somehow more bestial and don't seem to have full consciousness in, uh, in that yeah. film version, at least. Uh, well, it, that's a little unfair, too. Bilbo's trolls do, but the later trolls, yeah. like, they've got, they've got a cave troll. Like, that troll doesn't seem yeah. like he's he's sitting down and talking. So, um, so it did feel like this is a advanced stage of their development or something is pulling the strings like you're saying and and i think that's that's a fair mystery i will say i don't think it's celine celine okay. to me feels like she is a an actor of opportunity here that she sees her chance to have her schemes succeed failing so she's going to pop in and offer next to no help as you noted but no. but just remind him he needs to succeed and that this isn't what it's about um, or, you know, offer the chance uh, to to get him to use a little bit of the dark side powers. It seemed like that was her pure game yeah. um, and didn't want the, the game to be over. But I do not think it's her. I, I think it's much more likely that it's Fane still uh, controlling this in some way or yeah. perhaps some of those uh, ghosty people. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that stood out to me when Celine arrived is how much it felt like she was simultaneously surprised by what Rand was doing, but then also it felt like she was evaluating Rand in a lot of ways. And I got the same read you did. I, it felt like she was observing someone taking a test, but not one she had designed. Right. And mm. so um, I still got that kind of like very sus vibe without ever worrying, at least in my mind, that she was the one behind the the Trollocs. I immediately jumped to either Fane or someone like a, a step above Fane, if, if that's a thing that exists. Um, I have nothing else to say about Celine. We have said in every way we possibly can that we are <laughs> suspicious of her, um, which lets me jump to what I think is a wonderful comp that you will probably tell me is ridiculous. Um, or Tammuz, who is insulted every which way, could make me think of nothing but Jerry Gergich, right? Like, <laughs> just the number of times that thing goes wrong for that man in five pages, it, it feels appropriate. I like that. I didn't think of that at the time, but I, I certainly like that. I kind of dig this, the Illuminators and this kind of guild who makes fireworks. I'm like, that's all very cool. That's a little fun world buildy thing. Yeah. I was thinking if this was Skyrim, I would go to their headquarters and just like spend a month just doing all that quest line just to see where it got yeah. me. And Getting 100 for the it. fireworks skill. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And see how far I could get on it. Um, because that's the way I played that game all the time. Like Thieves Guild. All right, here goes a month of my life. Like I'm gonna that, be here. <laughs> that's why I gave up on that game because I got a month and a half in and I was like, I got a hundred in blacksmithing and weapons. What have I done? <laughs> uh, oh, but yet even this conversation, I'm like, you know, I could play Skyrim again. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. I should get it. I should get it for my new system. Uh and yeah, so uh, so that's a very cool bit of world building. I can't say I think that's going far places. I think it's just a little bit of scenery, as it seems to me. Yeah, I mean, the only other moment that stood out to me is one that I think works really well in a lot of media, which is fireworks becoming weapons. It worked in Mulan. It works here. It was a fun little scene. Yay, Robert Jordan. That's about all I have there. Um, that all I have of... to say about that is, again, we're doing this timelessly, not connected to any pop culture moments going on, but you should see John Wick 4. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, basically, what I've got now is uh, Celine is like every girl I dated in the early 2000s in that she breaks up via the fantasy equivalent of text messages. Uh, <laughs> any last thoughts on Celine just ghosting Rand again? No, I mean, I I think her scheme is so much bigger than Rand can begin to perceive. It's just yeah. going to keep being like that. And the fact that it ends on Rand having a like, bitches be crazy uh, <laughs> is a little much. It's like, yeah, Rand. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think I think your point from the synopsis is right. It's like, yeah, call them crazy. Call her crazy. Call Egwene crazy without thinking of your own erratic behavior. Yeah. Um, but also again like in this culture he's just out of his depth dealing with somebody who's scheming on the level of celine or moraine i'd be much more interested to know how those two are similar or different from each other like would they be the same class of power or are they you know is one different by a, potentially a huge magnitude but uh but in terms of rand getting to call them crazy nah buddy like you just yep. don't understand anything so well and especially Go back to the sheep <laughs> Especially being like, man, are all women crazy in a world where men who do what I do will literally go crazy? That seems like a bit of a reach, buddy. Uh, yeah. And if you're interested in seeing Rand overreach repeatedly and make a fool of himself, boy, do I have some good news for you. We have two more chapters next week. Uh, mm. They're actually not Rand chapters. That wasn't the world's best transition. <laughs> uh, but next week, we are going to be discuss discussing chapter 28, a new thread in the pattern, and chapter 29 sean chan which i mispronounced the vast majority of my life um so greg i'm going to let you take us out of this episode um with this question is there anything you are looking forward to i think we are now feeling the momentum towards the end game a little bit so is there anything you are in particularly anticipating as we get into the end of this second book uh, it feels like we have read the part of the book where we spread everybody out, and then I'm very much looking forward to collapsing them back in. I don't know that we'll have everybody reunited uh, by the end of the book, but I think we're going to start to see these threads come back together in different ways, and and that's what I'm excited about. I like this big cast of characters, but I prefer when they're bouncing off each other. And in that regard, the chapter, the first chapter title is really intriguing to me, um, and it's the wolf chapter. Uh, and then um, the uh, second one, all I could think of was Aquafina in Shang-Chi being like, your name is Shang and you hid as a guy named Sean. <laughs> uh, and that's all I'm thinking of as we look forward to next time on Through the Glass Columns. So ends another episode of Through the Glass Columns. We thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time. This podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass, and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library, and join us as we continue our journey.
If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend this show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time Through the Glass Columns.